This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by the American College of Physicians' all-new CME 100 video package. Learn and earn with 75 hours of virtual scientific lectures from the Internal Medicine Meeting 2021, plus an exclusive 25 bonus CME sessions. You can get nearly three years of access. Order now at acponline.org forward slash 100 curb. That's acponline.org forward slash 100 curb and use the code 100 curb. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, this uh, it feels a little weird starting this way, but welcome back to the Curbsiders. Uh, the audience at home can't see this, but we are doing a live talk talking about febrile neutropenia with a great guest, Dr. Susan So. But Paul, can you first tell people, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? And it's been a while since I asked you, has the what's the meaning of life? Has it changed? No, it, it remains 42. Thank you for asking. Yeah, and it's it's... For, um, yeah, that's the usual odd energy of a live presentation, even though we're zooming it up. Um, but anyway, you were nice enough to ask what we do. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you mentioned, we have the amazing Dr. Susan Zoe here to talk us through uh, febrile neutropenia. Dr. So, as you know, is an infectious disease physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Her ID interests include antibiotic stewardship and care of cancer patients with ID issues including those who are febrile and neutropenic, so she seems ideally suited for this particular topic. She's excited to join the Curbsiders team. Looks forward to this being her first podcast with the Curbsiders and possibly the first of many. Um, and I think with that, we usually transition into actually getting to know our guests a little bit, man. That's right. Susan, uh, is it okay if we call you Susan from here on out? Because that's- Absolutely. Okay. Uh, on the show, we always go by first names. Uh, so- can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and uh, give them a little bit of an idea of something you do outside the world of medicine, maybe a hobby or interest? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I'm not a native New Yorker. I'm actually a Carolina Tar Heel transplanted to New York. Little did I realize that I would end up being in the Big Apple. Outside of the hospital, I have a lot of different hobbies. I really love to travel. And, um, and I still have a lot of different places I want to go see, but obviously the COVID pandemic has put a damper on it. So I have indulged my love of travel through now subscribing a Netflix subscriber. So I'm watching all these foreign shows like Dark, uh, Money Heist, a lot of Korean dramas. And, and then I'm also a big fan of Animal Crossing Pocket, Pocket Camp on the iPhone. I'm a little nervous about getting the Nintendo Switch because I'm worried about being on that all the time. But uh, that's what I've been doing over the last year. The Switch is great. You, sh you should get it and just yes. like lock it up somewhere, you know, make it hard to get to. That way you won't be uh, as tempted yes. to play all the time. But it is, yes, it's fantastic. Yes, yes. It's a fa I, I know. A lot of great games on it. Yeah. Paul? It's, I've heard there's actually like abuse potential for Animal Crossing on the Switch. Like I've actually hesitated <laughs> to get it because I worry that it would take over my life and I might suffer as a physician. So I, <laughs> um, so I, I guess, well, 
I'll ask my usual question uh, about book recommendations. Uh, theoretically, we all have more time to read, though I've not been able to actually accomplish that, but, but someday I will. Is there any book that you think um, our audience would enjoy? It doesn't have to be medical. Just shoot the moon, something you've enjoyed recently. Um, I, so I'm going to make two book recommendations. One is, um, I just read a fiction book that was actually a very fast read called the vanishing half. I think it's been like on a lot of, um, national book clubs. And I thought that was a very engrossing read. Um, uh, you may know that it's a story about two twins of black Creole heritage and, one of the twins chooses to embrace her African-American identity and the other twin chooses to pass. And sort of what are the consequences of that decision um, uh, that affects their relationship, but also the generation after. So I thought I found that very engrossing. And I'm reading um, in the process of reading. Um, I'm not done with it yet, but it's called The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. And I think with all this talk about climate change, it's sort of a refreshing reminder that, you know, the impact that we as human beings have in, in terms of the environment and, and, you know, that we really need to do a better job of taking care of this planet, which is quite awesome. Good recommendations. I, I yes. think The Vanishing Half was recommended maybe once before on the show. It sounds very familiar. We also like to ask our guests, not just for book recommendations, we also like to ask about career advice. Most of our guests are much more accomplished than we are. Uh, our audience is a lot of people that are younger in medicine. So what is what is your favorite piece of advice that you've received? And it could be whether you, like during the time you were a trainee or now as an attending physician. Um. Probably a lot of different things, but I would probably say that, you know, the fun thing about medicine is that you may think you're starting off on one road, but there are all these different opportunities that come up. And so I think probably Matt and Paul, you, you probably never thought that you would be hosting, co-hosting a podcast, um, <laughs> you're, you know, in medical school. And I think, I think it's, um, uh, you know, being open to opportunities that may come and that may take that may utilize some of, you know, your hidden talents or skills that you may never have realized that you've had, or you, you knew you had, but you just didn't get to indulge them. So I guess that's one piece of advice. I, I, I think you're quite correct in saying that we did not think that we would be uh, hosting a podcast, but now, uh, yeah, you just definitely said yes to a lot of things that that got us to be here today, talking uh, talking with you all, doing a podcast. I think that's great advice for the audience. Paul, you know, I, I think we have some picks of the week for today, since this is a special episode. We haven't been doing the picks of the week as much lately, but I think, uh, I think this is a good for a forum. So give the audience a pick of the week. Well, Susan, you mentioned Netflix. I'm not sure if you've been able to watch the movie I Care A Lot, which came out in 2020. It stars Rosamund Pike, who was in Gone Girl, and I think she actually won a Golden Globe for the performance in I Care A Lot. It also stars uh, Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones fame, and it's about just awful human beings, just the worst human beings. So Rosamund Pike plays a character who basically involuntarily commits older patients to an assisted living facility where they're sedated, and then she seizes control of their assets by taking guardianship of them and then sells them to make money out of it. So she's awful. And then somehow manages to get herself involved with the Russian mafia, who are, of course, also not great. Um, and just everyone behaves badly. And the performances are all just like deeply nasty, but kind of satisfying. So it's it's a really fun movie. Um, if you, I'm going to have to put that on my queue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that pick. Really, it's squirmy. So, it, I mean, you're uncomfortable much of the time, but only because it's so well done. So it's I, yeah, I would highly recommend I Care A Lot. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to say pass on that one for me, Paul. Not to judge your recommendation. It's just Paul, you know. I mean, and and though although I feel hypocritical because my recommendation is not 
is not the most fun is not the most fun thing. I I wanted to recommend to you and Susan, have you have you read the book The Goldfinch or I believe it's also a movie which I have not seen, but The Goldfinch is a book that uh, came out a couple years ago and won a Pulitzer, I believe. You I have not read The Goldfinch, but I I uh, I do remember there's a picture of a goldfinch on the book cover. Yes. It's a it's a famous painting which I think is a real painting. I don't know. I, I I'm not an art history major, and I didn't I didn't look it up. But it, it's it's the story of a young boy who unexpectedly loses uh, uh, his mother in like a freak accident, and then it follows his journey. And it's it's a very long book, which I did not know at the time because I started reading it on Kindle, and then I was just like, "How long is this thing? I feel like I've been reading it for a month." <laughs> and it took me about that long to read it, but it was like one of those books I couldn't put down. Um, it it deals with like mental health and uh, and addiction issues and this kid's just got this crazy story that he goes through um and it ends in a i think a positive place so it's not all doom and gloom but it is uh it's a really good read and i would recommend that to anybody if they they're looking for some fiction uh that can be a little on the heavy side and it's it's a longer book but i i think it's well worth it um very beautifully written so paul I think we have to get on to the topic before uh, we we use all our time on picks of the week. Although you know, maybe maybe there's an <laughs> audience amazing. for that too. Sure. Hey, audience! A reminder that today's episode is sponsored by the American College of Physicians and their all new CME 100 recordings. This package gives you 75 hours of the Internal Medicine Meeting 2021 lectures and associated Q and A plus an exclusive 25 bonus CME sessions. They will be available for nearly three years of access with CME eligibility to 100 hours of high-quality practice-changing updates delivered by world-class faculty. Our team attended the internal medicine meeting this year, and we were just blown away by the quality of the sessions. They were packed with so many pearls that we found usable. We actually had trouble picking the pearls out that we were going to include in our recap episodes and deciding which session to go to. But fortunately, with the ACP CME 100, we can go back and listen to all the sessions, and there's 25 bonus sessions as well. You can order ACP CME 100 now and start earning CME at your own pace. Visit acponline.org forward slash 100 curb. That's acponline.org forward slash 100 curb and use the code 100 curb. So let's let's start with a case as we often do. Um, for the audience listener at home, the patient's name is Luca Pena, and I, I will fully acknowledge that we left money on the table by not making it Luca Pena. Um, <laughs> he is a 56-year-old former tobacco user, uh, but does not carry a formal diagnosis of COVD. He has high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and esophageal cancer receiving chemotherapy, his last cycle being about three weeks ago. He's being evaluated in the emergency department for a fever. He has been able to eat and drink a little bit. He works part-time from home and is able to perform household chores, so still performing his ADLs still remaining relatively active. In the ER, his temperature is 100.6 degrees taken orally. His blood pressure is 130 over 80. Heart rate is 75. Respiratory rate is 12. And his O2 sat is 95%. In the ER, they repeat his temperature 30 minutes later, and it's persistently febrile at 100.8. The initial CBC shows a white blood cell count of 1.5 with 30% neutrophils, 1% bands, a hemoglobin of 10.5, and platelets of 162. His chemistry show a creatinine of 0.8, which is right around his baseline, and normal liver function aside from an albumin of 3. 
So before we get too deep into Mr. Pena's case, we always like to start with just broad definitions and then kind of work our way into the case itself. Could you just talk us through about what your, your definition of febrile neutropenia is or neutropenic fever is and how we should start thinking about this case? Sure. Um, so, so luckily the definition of fever neutropenia is, is the word fever neutropenia. <laughs> so <laughs> it just means, it just means that, that the patient has to meet being febrile and being neutropenic. So it's a very easy definition to remember. Right. Um, so Paul, um, just, just to clarify for the audience, it, it's not just a clever name. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so um, so uh, fever, I guess, you know, this temperature of 100.6 would count. Um, I think you could, um, or you could be in a febrile state for over an hour. Um, a very common definition for neutropenia is um, if the absolute neutrophil count is below 0.5 or other people like to use an absolute neutrophil count of one, but they know or they anticipate that the absolute neutrophil count is going to drop over the next 48 hours. So that's really the classic definition uh, for a febrile neutropenic patient. So quick math, this patient is around 500 for their absolute count. So we're setting you up. This is febrile neutropenia. And the I, I think the interesting discussion about this is this is an outpatient right now who seems to be doing relatively well other than the, the fever and the neutropenia. And so how do you approach the risk with this patient? And like, how's that going to affect your choice for medication? And, you know, we'll get into that, the choice for medication and the location where you're going to treat this person. Oh, is it me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I would okay. never throw Paul. The ball yeah. is back to me. I, okay. I don't want to throw Paul under the bus with that. <laughs> Susan, just to be clear, um, no one cares what I think. So this is, yeah, this is all you. Okay. So I think that um, the one distinction that we want to make is um, whether this patient potentially can be managed as an outpatient in this category that we call low risk. Um, fever and neutropenia. And so I guess we can walk through this case in terms of whether this, this gentleman would fit that criteria. I would say a good rule of thumb. So I know that there are there's the mask index, and I think Matt and Paul mentioned this mask index. The mask index is a very well-validated tool that is mentioned in the Infectious Diseases Society of America guidelines. It's in the ASCO guidelines. And it's basically, they're like risk factors, and each risk factor is a given a weight, a numerical weight. And for a given patient, you sum up the numbers, and, um, and the magic number is 21. And so if you're less than 21, you're considered high risk. And if you're over 21, you're considered low risk. And the distinction of low risk would be that you have the option of, if you have the setup, to be able to treat that patient as an outpatient. And uh, I see on this slide here that there's also this CISNY score. And I'm, I have to tell you, I'm not very familiar with this CISNY score. So Matt and Paul might have to uh, do a little bit of teaching here uh, to teach me something uh, new today. Um, uh, so Matt and Paul, I, what is yeah, the CISNY score? The, the, reason, the reason we just can, included the CISNY score is just because it's one of the other ones that you'll come across if, it's, if you read about this. And it seemed like it was a relatively short score and one that could be, and one that could be incorporated. Um, it's, it's also well validated. I don't think we need to spend a ton of time going through it. I, just, I thought that it was interesting that it include the, included a monocyte count 
and uh, stress-induced hyperglycemia, and then this mucositis score, which is something that I don't know that I would even know how to do that. So (laughs) it would be something that a part of the reason we included it and part of why I think it's helpful to talk to you is to say, like, is this being used widely or not? And uh, it sounds like not really one that you're using. No. Um, if, if we are going to use, it's probably going to be the mass score. Yeah. Um, I would say, however, you know, all of these scores, they're great, but I never remember like the different components right. of them. I always have to look it up and use the calculator um, to be able to calculate it. I, I would say for the audience, like a really good rule of thumb uh, for what, who would be a good patient for outpatient management would be a sort of, first of all, thinking about um, what what do you anticipate the the neutropenia to be in terms of the duration and in terms of the severity. And so a good rule of thumb is that a solid tumor patient, such as this gentleman who has esophageal cancer, the chemotherapy that they receive is generally not cytotoxic. It's not intensive. And so if they are going to be neutropenic, the neutropenia is gonna be relatively mild and it's going to be short. And when I say short, meaning that it's going to recover in within a week. Um, and if that person happens to get GCSF, I think we've all seen them clinically, like their neutrophil count will recover like within 24 hours. So that's what I, I mean by um, a solid tumor patient, rule of thumb generally has very mild and short duration neutropenia. And that would be potentially a really good candidate for for outpatient management. The other rule, um, I think, if we want to think about outpatient management is, um, could we go back to the first slide? I think that there was some mention that, so he does have some comorbidities, the hypertension, hyperlipidemia. We don't know how well it's controlled, but let's say that he is well controlled in terms of his blood pressure. And so the fact that he doesn't have a lot of comorbidities is another sort of rule of thumb, maybe, and his performance status, the fact that he's still able to work, albeit part-time from home, but he's still able to do perform out, um, household chores, it suggests that his performance status is actually pretty good. And the other really helpful piece of information here is the fact that he can eat and drink a bit. And, and we can come back to that in a, in a moment in terms of thinking about if he is a candidate for outpatient management, why that's significant. The other thing to think about for outpatient management is obviously the exam and the labs and the fact that he's hemodynamically stable. So again, you can see his blood pressure is 130 over 80. So his blood pr- he's not emergently hypertensive, but he's not hypotensive either. Um, he's breathing with a normal respiratory rate with good oxygenation. I don't know that we have the exam, but maybe we'll get to that. But The other key point here, um, just very quickly, is that we can see that he's got normal creatinine, a normal creatinine of 0.8 and normal liver function. And that suggests that he doesn't have end organ disease or some things that we would worry about. So he's a pretty, sounds like other than being febrile and neutropenic, he's clinically stable, has pretty good performance status, able to eat uh, good normal um, liver liver function and renal function. So right now he's looking pretty low risk. We're feeling kind of okay about things. I wonder if you could talk for a second, is there calculus involved in terms of social supports? Like, so I feel oh, like sometimes you talk question. about like how, how, how close to the hospital they live, who's at home, who can check on them. So how, how do you think about that when you're sort of risk stratifying who can do outpatient or inpatient? Absolutely. So that's, thank you very much, Paul. So that, that's also a very um, important criterion um, to consider. That's if, uh, does he have someone at home 
who, who like a 24 hour caregiver, someone who can help monitor uh, the temperature, can monitor the, the clinical uh, situation. Uh, that's important. The rule of thumb is also to be within um, an emergency room of within 60 minutes so that you could, so that even if you're home and something happens and you need to go back to the emergency room, the commute time is not going to be tremendously long. That would impact uh, your ability to be treated uh, uh, quickly and appropriately when you show up there. So that's also important as well. Obviously, I guess having a, a thermometer at home to monitor your <laughs> temperature would also be important. Uh, and, and I think the communication, being able to have a phone to a call to say, you know, my, the status has changed and uh, that's important. So, you know, that's all important. When you were mentioning the risk tools, I just I wanted to point out to the audience that whenever you read about the risk tools, they always footnote it that to say like, you know, clinician gestalt can trump these tools. Like if you're just like, I don't care if it says low risk, I'm admitting this person, like it's this is a horrible idea to send this person home, then then that that factors in too. So you can you can override them with your your clinician gestalt. And um Paul, we must certainly I, I'm sure you have questions about the exam for this, right? Or should we just skip that? No, I actually, yeah, no, let's not skip the exam. That sounds like it's an important thing. So I actually, I wanted to ask you, Susan, in terms of like, obviously the differential is going to be broad for undifferentiated fever. Um, I I wonder if there's any particularly high yield exam locations when you do physical exam, is there any particular areas that you focus on specifically for someone who comes in with something that's sort of not really localizing? Great. Um, So actually, like when they've looked at the types of infections that are common in febrile neutropenic patients, they're basically three organ sites. The first is the GI tract. So like, you know, so do they have mucositis that's going to affect their ability to take PO? Are they having diarrhea? Are they having belly pain? So the GI tract is one. The lung is the, a, another big one. So, do, you know, do they have signs or symptoms that make you worried about pneumonia? And then the third big area is the skin. And in the skin, um, they always say, the, the experts always say to just examine the skin, look to see if there's rash, for example. If they have a line, make sure you look at the line site to see if, is, there, is there potential for like a line infection? What does the exit site look like? You know, if they've had a bone marrow biopsy, look at the bone marrow aspiration site because we have seen some patients come in um, with uh, that bone marrow site being super infected, not necessarily patient with esophageal cancer, but you know, heme malignancy patient, but the bone marrow aspiration site. And then I would say probably less of an issue for an esophageal cancer patient, but um, they also talk about the perirectal area. Um, they, they can have fistula, they can have anal fissures and sort of local discomfort. So making sure that you ask them, you know, are they having painful bowel movements or, you know, et cetera, those kind of questions are also important. So the GI tract, the lungs and the skin. Can I, you, you mentioned the perirectal thing. I, I feel like every medical student like always brings up like you, you can't do a rectal exam on somebody with a, who's neutropenic. Is that based in any evidence or is that just like one of these things that just like gets handed down like, and no one's ever going to look at it because it seems like a bad idea? It probably is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, I, uh, I think probably the the rule of thumb that we've all always been taught is to don't do a rectal exam on a febrile neutropenic patient, but you can you can visually inspect, and if and if they do have symptoms, they'll they'll tell you like if you you know they'll they'll say you know it hurts at the twelve o'clock or something like that they'll they'll let you know. Okay, and I apologize to the audience for talking about a rule of thumb involving a rectal <laughs> exam oh, as well. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. 
Stuart's not here. Someone had to say it. <laughs> I, I think one of the things I want to ask about, just so I can move quickly past this, is when, you know, I, I think looking at some of the guidelines and even when I'm consulting Dr. UpToDate, whom I trust in all things, when they're, when they're talking about what sort of initial evaluation you do in terms of testing for a patient. So things like, you know, culturing and sort of looking for localized infection, it's always as clinically indicated is sort of the caveat there because we're high value cost conscious care. We are, are smart and judicious clinicians. In practice at Cash Lake Memorial Hospital, I feel like I just see everyone is pan cultured, pan scanned. If someone has neutropenia, so I'm just wondering, in terms of your expert approach, is there is there something that you should get every single time? Is there, you know, what is what is your, your initial bare bones workup if nothing is localized so far? Um, I think so. I'm just going to focus on the micro, the the micro and the diagnostic workup. So um, uh, the lab, the labs uh, for sure, you need a CBC and the comprehensive metabolic panel, uh, including an assessment of the liver function and the kidney function. Um, the other thing would be uh, blood cultures are a must uh, in any febrile neutropenic patient. Um, we know that up to 30% of patients can be bacteremic. And um, so uh, in general, um, uh, they, uh, if they have a line, um, the, the key is to draw blood culture through every lumen of the line, at least for the first set of blood culture, and then to see if you can draw peripheral blood culture set. Um, in children, um, uh, I know we're internal medicine, but just, just to pull in a plug for our MedPeds colleagues out there, um, for children, um, you know, uh, you know, it can be kind of scary, you know, getting uh, blood drawn. So if they have a line, then they will, you generally hear, they will forego drawing the peripheral blood culture and just draw through the line. If there is no line, and I don't remember if this gentleman has a line or not, um, I guess Paul and Matt will, will remind us, but if there is no line, then we just draw two sets of peripheral blood cultures. The urine culture, I'm going to say that I, I think that that's a very low yield test, if, if I can just offer an opinion. Uh, <laughs> an expert opinion, the, yeah. It's, it's a little tough because I, I think it's worth sending if, if they mention that they have symptoms uh, that's re referring to the urinary system, like burning or flank pain, um, you know, maybe, maybe if their cancer is affecting the urinary tract and so they're, they're higher, higher likelihood maybe of, of um, potentially having that be a potential source. But I find the urine uh, to be kind of low yield here. Um, I'm not so certain. So I think that's why um, maybe the IDSA guidelines and up-to-date sake is clinically warranted so that you can make your own decision as to whether to send a urine analysis in your culture or not. Um, the urine analysis, I think, is probably not going to be very helpful to us because if they're neutropenic, you know, if we use pyuria as a gauge of whether they have a urinary tract infection, you know, in a neutropenic patient, it's a little bit hard to know how to interpret that result. And um, so anyway, so the urine, I'm a little, you know, I'm not sure. I, I have reservations about that. Um, if they have diarrhea, I would say certainly it's worth to send that for stool studies. You know, um, we call it the GIPCR here. Uh, you can send a C. difficile. Uh, we know C. difficile can occur in febrile neutropenic patients. Um, I know we tend to do a chest x-ray here as a routine. What's interesting is that the IDSA guidelines say that you can do the chest x-ray only if clinically warranted. I'm probably would sort of err on the side of maybe doing a chest x-ray also because, you know, the problem with in the neutropenic patient is that even if they have an infection, um, because uh, 
the inflammatory response is blunted, they may not be able to have like, like the normal types of symptoms that a non-neutropenic patient would have. So it might be worthwhile to at least do a chest x-ray and rule out pneumonia. You know, who knows, maybe this esophageal cancer patient, maybe he's quietly aspirating, you know, maybe there's something there that could be picked up. Who knows? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And audience, you know that I'm a huge fan of BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P. I have been using their service for more than six months now, and I have just been thrilled at how easy it was to finally get myself a licensed professional therapist. This is something that I really thought about doing in med school, in residency, but I just felt there was too much stigma. And fortunately now, I think the world is finally coming around. It's easier to get a therapist, and actually people are talking about mental health, so I encourage you to take care of yourself. You can start communicating with a therapist in under 48 hours. They have people with a broad range of expertise, some of which may not be available locally in many areas, and this is worldwide. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, or you can send a message to your therapist at any time, and you no longer have to deal with that uncomfortable therapist waiting room. Also, it's easy and free to change therapists if you need it. So what are you waiting for? Visit betterhelp.com forward slash curb. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and as a special offer for Curbsiders listeners, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash curb. That's betterhelp.com forward slash C-U-R-B. A question I had that you could probably, and I'm sorry, but you don't so much talking about, but I, I, and then we could probably do a whole episode on this, but I wonder how has COVID change things for, for like this type of presentation. I feel like, you know, a lot of patients are coming with a fever that's not differentiated. That would now be the first thing I'd worry about. And even in terms of the home supports versus admitting someone to a place where, you know, particularly in, you know, at, at our cash slack where COVID is still kind of all over the place and there's certain risks inherent with bringing a patient in for admission too. Like how has that changed your overall approach in terms of risk stratification and, and diagnostics or has it? Um, I'm going to say that for the patients who are hospitalized with fever neutropenia, I don't think that the approach inpatient management has changed other than like the surveillance testing to, you know, for COVID doing the infection control procedures, um, things like that. You know, if they're febrile neutropenic and have COVID, then we'd manage them as, as if they were febrile neutropenic and then, you know, give them remdesivir and other treatments accordingly. I wanted to bring it back to a second for the, uh, your, you're telling us, uh, that you, you don't love getting urinalysis and urine cultures on everyone. And I'm just like, I, I love that point. Uh, we, we are certainly fully in the camp of asymptomatic bacteria is way overtreated. And, uh, a lot, I think a lot of the times, you know, just cause someone has a fever, everyone sends urine, even if there's no symptoms attributable to the urinary tract. I think this is just goes for all patients. So people, my audience, my plea with you is please like, if you're thinking about UTI, like try to find some symptoms that might point you in that direction before you just send the urinalysis, because then you're going to give people unnecessary antibiotics, and that's bad. But for this patient, 
we're probably going to give some antibiotics, Susan. So can you tell us like how might we approach that now that we've, let's say he did have a port and we sent uh, blood cultures from both lumens and we sent peripheral cultures as well, uh, CBC, CMP, and uh, what what antibiotics might we start him on while we're waiting? And we got a chest x-ray. What antibiotics might we start him sure. on? Well, I think that um, there's one of two approaches. So let's, uh, I will sort of um, steer this in one of two directions. So while he's waiting, uh, the one thing you could do is just start him on IV antibiotics. And the first line, according to the IDSA guidelines, and I'm referring to the 2010 um, IDSA guidelines for the management of fever neutropenia, the the first line intravenous antibiotic regimens include um, ceftazidine, which uh, is primarily a gram-negative agent. There's only one center in this country that I'm familiar with that I think does ceftazidine monotherapy. But really, a lot of medical centers rely on either piprocil and tazobactam or cefepime as their go-to agent for fever neutropenia. And the reason why piptase and cefepime, it's because we know from the epi of the types of um, bacterial infections, these are both broad spectrum. They include, um, they're both uh, bactericidal and they include um, anti-pseudomonal activity, which classically in the 1970s, when this uh, febrile neutropenia entity was first described, the initial infections for which the patients were succumbing to were gram-negative infections, including pseudomonas, and the mortality was quite high. So that data from the 1970s is still informing sort of our uh, antibiotic approach to the febrile neutropenic today. Some, I think a common question is, so, okay, so this patient is a good candidate for outpatient therapy. He's got a caregiver at home. He's within 60 minutes of the hospital. So far, the exam and the, the cultures and everything are sort of negative to date. You can keep him overnight, like for 24 hours. And then what do you do? Do you admit him or can you send him home? And, it, you know, you can use the mask uh, index, for example, but um, as, a, as a guide. But if he's able to go home, then you can send him out on a regimen of amoxicillin clavulanate and ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin. Um, that regimen has been very well studied. And again, the addition of that quinolone gives you the anti-pseudomonal coverage. The amoxicillin clavulanate gives you the gram-positive coverage. And so that is the classic oral regimen for outpatient management. And the fact that this patient can swallow, take his meds, um, and, uh, and it seems like he, he would probably be a good candidate, this would be the regimen that I would recommend. If he were penicillin allergic and he can't take amoxicillin, then um, an alternative would be clindamycin in combination with with a quinolone. Yeesh, that's uh. <laughs> and then the C. Diff do you, yeah, do you, do you also <laughs> do you also give them something for C. diff prophylaxis in this case? Uh, I, I feel like that's. Uh, does, do you run into that, uh, Susan? Like where so you're, you're putting you're, you're putting someone on a quinolone and potentially clindamycin or even a moxclav. I mean, is not nothing to sniff at if you're talking mm-hmm. about C diff. And so, do you is that a consideration? Or are these patients getting C diff when they're on this on this treatment? Um, well, let's. Well, I'm going to say first of all, there's no need to prophylax against C difficile. Uh, yeah. And so no no. 
please audience, no, no flagell, no oral bingo <laughs> on top of this. But keep in mind also, again, that this candidate, that it's not as if he will be on this regimen for like a very long period of time. This candidate will probably resolve his neutropenia very quickly in under a week. And therefore, the timeline that he's going to actually be on this oral regimen is probably going to be very short. And um, I, I do know that um, at some centers where they have an outpatient regimen, rather than doing oral antibiotics, I know that some centers have actually sent them out on a pump, like a piperacillin-tazobactam continuous infusion pump or a cefepine pump. But that's if, you know, you've got to have like a really good logistical setup in, in order to do something like that. And again, in this type of patient in whom the duration of the neutropenia is going to be, again, very short. I'm not sure, you know, does that really make sense uh, in terms of setting that up? We could talk about that approach maybe a little bit more with like more of a high-risk patient, but, but I'm just sort of thinking through all of the different things right now. Yeah, and I guess that begs the question, uh, like when, when do you stop antibiotics in this patient? Ah, good question. So you stop antibiotics uh, when the patient um, uh, has defervesced hopefully. Uh, and this patient should. I think in general, solid tumor patients, uh, they, gener- they tend to de- defervesce pretty quickly. They say in the, the, in the studies, it takes on average three days for people to defervesce once they've started on broad spectrum therapy for fever neutropenia. But the patients, the lower risk patients, the solid tumor patients, they, they tend to defervesce faster than three days. So if they've defervesced, they remain clinically stable. There's no evidence for an infection that you need to treat, uh, you stop antibiotics and you stop it all at the same time. Okay. So if we didn't, you told us the, that we're looking at, like, is this the gut or is this a mucositis? Is it like the GI tract? Is it the lung? Is it the skins? And we're going to look like lines, bone marrow biopsy sites, perirectal area. And if we didn't find any infections there and the cultures are negative, which for my reading might happen like 20 to 30% of the time, you don't, you don't really find anything then the person can stop really quickly. But if we find an infection, then you treat based on that infection. Absolutely. Okay. Now, if, if, he, if this patient were to have an infection, like let's say he had a pneumonia, then he, he's probably not a candidate for outpatient treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, you, you want someone who's clinically stable, and we talked about all the other criteria, but they really shouldn't have any other infection that you have to worry about, right? Because the one chance you're going to take potentially is someone who goes out and maybe that infection may not respond to whatever treatment you have sent that person home on. So that is something to consider. So, but so, so someone who has no defined infection other than just being febrile neutropenic, again, low risk patient, good liver function, good renal function, excellent performance status, can take oral pills. Um, Within 60 minutes of the hospital, caregiver at home has a telephone. That's really the key person, key candidate for low-risk fever neutropenia management, outpatient. Otherwise, if there's any doubt, gray area, admit them. Paul, we are sponsored tonight by Provider Solutions and Development. And right now we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do some trivia. Okay, Paul? And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put you through it a little bit. Uh, there's no prizes, but there will be great shame if you get the wrong answers. Perfect. That's what I like. All right, Paul. So there's there's four or five questions, and uh, let's get started. So, which medical specialist, Paul, do you think 
are the happiest? So I would guess if I had to pick, I would think that it's the people who tend to have like teddy bears attached to their stethoscopes <laughs> or, or frogs or what have you, you know, name your choice. I have to think the pediatricians just by dint of, of who they deal with and how they have to be, have to be the, the happiest overall. You know, I was thinking it was like dermatologists, something like that. But apparently, Paul, I was very surprised by this answer. Apparently, it's plastic surgeons. And I, I do not quite get that. Good for them. I guess that, that is not what I would have loved with. That, that is great. So, Paul, not only are they way cooler than us, living a way more <laughs> lavish lifestyle, I have to imagine it's like nip tuck, right? So they, and, and they are apparently they're the happiest. But at least they're happy. So good. That's good. So plastic surgeons, we salute you. Uh, <laughs> okay. Question number two, Paul, you're. You're 0 for 1, so great shame Great shame is heading your way. Which specialty has the highest burnout rate? See, this feels like a trick question. I feel like, are we counting the past year or not? I'm going to count the past year and imagine it has to be um, either palm critical care or probably even more so I'm going to go infectious diseases because it, it had to have been just a living nightmare for the past year dealing with what they've been dealing with. Yes, I don't know when this survey da- data comes from, but apparently there's a Medscape uh, Medscape National found that it's actually urologists have the highest incidence of burnout, which I don't I, I don't understand. I uh, urologists they always seem like they're a great time at a party. They got a lot of great stories, um, usually a good sense of humor. So I'm I'm sorry to hear that the urologists have such a, a high rate of burnout. Yeah, no, pulling for him for sure. Um, you know, who wasn't burned out this past year, Paul? <laughs> That's fair. Question number three, and for the audience, Paul is, is 0, for, 0 for 2. What percentage of physicians have some kind of side hustle, Paul? What do you think? Well, it's, you know, I this is a, a hard job and it's a busy job. So I don't imagine that most of us have time to really do anything extra, like say a, a podcast or anything. So I'm going to guess the number is relatively low. Um, we'll say three and a half percent is what I'm going to go with. <laughs> Well, Paul, you were wrong by a factor of ten. Actually, it's it's about almost almost thirty three. It's thirty two percent of physicians have some sort of a side hustle. Most of it is medical consulting. So, does that really count as a side? Hu- I mean, it's kind of a side hustle. Like the job, right? Is a medical podcast a side hustle? Do we like that term, side hustle, Paul? I, I mean, <laughs> just because we're making so much money from it, I feel like that applies. <laughs> but I, you know, I was thinking more along the lines of like Uber driving and that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I guess medical consulting, sure. Okay. All right. Question number four. What percentage of new doctors, and this one, Paul, this one made me a little sad. What part percentage of new doctors will leave their job within four years? Again, I have to imagine, just given the crippling debt that I left medical school with, I don't think that there's an option to do it for too, too many people. So I feel like, again, this has to be a low number. I'm Again, I'm going to go, we'll say 5%, I'm going to guess. Actually, Paul, it's once again, uh, you, you, you're 0 for 5, and once again, you were wrong by a factor of 10. So 50% of new doctors are going to leave their jobs within four years, Paul. That is why people need our sponsor tonight, Provider Solutions and Development. You, you were mentioning that during the pandemic, people were feeling overworked. People were wanting a change. So tell them a little bit about Provider Solutions and Development. Yeah, thanks, Ben. So Provider Solutions and Development, they're a truly unique recruitment organization. They don't do quotas. They don't do commissions. Instead, they put all their energy to bring you options that both fit your career and your lifestyle goals. If you were to go to info.psdconnect.org slash curbsiders right now, 
Not only would you find hundreds of jobs from Hawaii to New York, that sounds delightful, you'll find free resources to help physicians like you discover where you're meant to be. Provider solutions and development can help you find that role where you can pursue your professional ambitions, maintain a healthy work-life balance, and live in a location where you can chase your passions. Head on over to info.psdconnect.org slash curbsiders to see what opportunities are out there for you. Again, that's info.psdconnect.org slash curbsiders to find out what opportunities are available for you. Let's let's give you a bit of a, a, a different case. So, Paul, you want to okay. take us there? Sure. So we're going to tell you about Ms. Anne-Marie Lestrade, who prefers to go by her initials, of course. She is a 32-year-old female. She's admitted with acute leukemia and receiving induction chemotherapy via a tunneled central line for, you guessed it, it is AML. Uh, so this is an admitted patient with a line uh, with AML. She's had poor oral intake for several days. She's been started on low-dose basal insulin with a correction scale for some moderate hyperglycemia. She spends most of the day in bed as she is uh, easily fatigued by trips to the restroom. They just completely wipe her out. Overnight, while admitted, she develops a fever to 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Her blood pressure is 85 over 55 with a heart rate in the 130s. She is placed on four liters of nasal cannula for SATs in the mid-80s. Her white count that morning shows a white blood cell count of 0.8 with 20% neutrophils, 5% bands, hemoglobin to 6.9, platelets of 66, and her creatinine has almost doubled from 0.7 to 1.3. So this is, I think we can probably agree, a markedly different patient than uh, than Mr. Pena. So how... How does your approach differ uh, for this patient who seems substantially sicker than, than our first patient? Great. So I'm going to go back to the first teaching point, which is the low-risk patient, generally a solid tumor patient, short, mild duration of neutropenia. This patient is on the whole other end of the spectrum, and this is what we would call a high-risk febrile neutropenic patient. And in general, um, think of an AML patient undergoing induction chemotherapy. I would also lump in an allogeneic uh, transplant patient who's, who's um, going through cytoreduction and getting an anticipating transplant. And these people have very prolonged neutropenia and very oftentimes it, the ANC is zero and it's more than 10 days. So it can be up to 14 days, maybe longer um, if they're really treatment experienced. And it's severe. I said ANC of zero. Um, and, um, so, (laughs) right. So this, this patient would be classified as a high risk febrile neutropenic patient. And on the other end of the spectrum, just to point out, she's on insulin with some hyperglycemia and in contrast to the other patient, she's kind of wiped out. sounds like her performance status is pretty poor. Um, she has a very high fever in contrast to the first patient. It's a fever of 102. And she's hypotensive with almost SERS-like criteria, right? With a high heart rate in the 130s. And then she's also requiring oxygen. So she seems pretty sick. Um, so right off the scale, you don't even need the mask index. You're going to admit this patient. <laughs> this patient is going to be admitted uh, for, for workup and, and IV antibiotics. Okay. So... We we stabilize her heart rate and blood pressure. We give her fluids. She's she we start her on some IV medication and uh, you, we start her on IV vancomycin and cefepime. And you can you can comment on the choices here. Uh, this is the hospitalist working overnight that did this without your guidance. Um, they they sent blood and urine cultures, um, which so far haven't shown us anything. There was on the chest X-ray. We didn't really see infiltrates. We just saw some effusions. We were able to wean her down off the oxygen, but she's been febrile. So. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you might think of this? Like, would you have done these same initial choices? Was there any other testing you might have thought about here? 
So I think that uh, whoever the hospitalist uh, was taking care of this patient did a, did a really nice job. I would also agree here with um, the addition. She has a line, right? Yeah, we, we said she okay. had a port. Yeah, tunnel, <laughs> so, okay. tunnel line. I, I would agree with the addition um, with the addition of vancomycin um, with the cefepime, and I'll get to that in a moment. So again, as a reminder that the first line agents for fever and neutropenia include piperacillin or cefepime. At our institution, um, our go-to agent is piperacillin but I know at a lot of other centers that they, they use cefepime and there's no data to show that one agent is superior over the other. So either, either of those, perfectly fine. A very common question that we get asked um, is when do I add vancomycin? Vancomycin for the most part is not necessary with, with the first initial regimen for fever neutropenia. And, but there are specific criteria or specific scenarios in which it is appropriate. So one would be this hypotensive lady uh, who has a line and maybe there's a possibility that there's line sepsis. So you wanna just cover with vancomycin just to make sure that's covered. Another common one would be someone who's had a prior history of MRSA colonization or infection or someone who has a pneumonia and you're worried about MRSA. I think those would be acceptable. Sometimes there is an entity where people who uh, have undergone induction chemotherapy have really bad mucositis and they can develop a sepsis syndrome from viridin streptococci, which is a bacteria that, that lives in our um, oral tract. And so if you're worried about that, then, then adding vancomycin would also be appropriate. So I agree with the addition of vancomycin in this case, because she presented pretty sick, hypotensive, required fluid resuscitation. And if the blood cultures are negative, you know, within 48 hours, then you can easily stop the vancomycin. Would your calculus have changed if she had been on like a prophylactic antibiotic? Or do you think this patient would have been on a prophylactic or should have been on a prophylactic antibiotic? Oh, so that's a great question. So the role of antibiotic prophylaxis is really to reduce the episode of fever neutropenia and to reduce bacterial infections. But really the only real group of people in whom that has actually shown a survival benefit, right? It are, are really these high-risk neutropenic patients. So th that includes this lady here, um, AML, who has AML and is undergoing induction chemo or the allogeneic transplant patient, for example. However, the first patient we, we looked at uh, who has esophageal cancer with a mild to mild degree of neutropenia, you'd have to probably treat at least, you know, 40, 50, 60, maybe up to 100 people. I, I'm just sort of throwing out a number there <laughs> in order to prevent one death, whereas the number needed to treat to prevent one death in a high-risk patient is much lower, you know, and so... I think probably in this case, it's we can guess that she may have been on prophylaxis. The most common agent for prophylaxis is going to be equinolone. Mm -hmm. And if they are on equinolone and they come in febrile neutropenic on the quinolone, you obviously are not going to leave them on the quinolone. You're going to stop it and you're going to use the cefepime or the piperacillin tazobactam. So it's been three days and she's still having fevers. When do you add antifungal and would that have been reasonable for the hospitals to have done like upfront to put, put this person on like an antifungal coverage? 
You know, that that's also a really good question. So initially, if you're febrile neutropenic and when they've looked at the types of infections that occur, the first types of infections are usually bacterial. You only worry about fungal infections occurring the longer that you're neutropenic and the longer that you're on a broad spectrum antibacterial agent. So probably the the time point. So this lady seems like she's still persistently neutropenic despite at least 72 hours of um, cefepime and vancomycin. And um, and if there's no source, um, then probably you want to just check with her again to see whether she's developed any new symptoms. Um, You could potentially do a chest CT. Sometimes the chest x-ray may not be sensitive enough to pick up like a nodule or something on the scan, you know, and you're going to obviously want to reassess your coverage. And if she has not been on an antifungal prophylactic agent, then it's very reasonable to start her on empiric antifungal therapy. The classic has been an amphotericin based product because that's really the oldest antifungal agent that's been out there. But, you know, um, there are a lot of side effects associated. So people have used um, also an echinocandin, for example, that has been studied or an azole um, agent like voriconazole, for example. None of these agents have been shown to be superior to the gold standard, which is amphotericin B, but they obviously have broader spectrum, you know, they have broad spectrum of um, activity. And unlike amphotericin B, um, like mycofungin, anidulofungin, caspofungin, for example, they're gentle on the kidneys, they're pretty well tolerated. So um, those would be some of the antifungal agents to consider. And I feel like the, the perennial question for all these cases of neutropenic fever is, is when is there a circumstance where you'd use GCSF? Like it's uh-huh. always, it just seems so intuitive. Let's just fix the neutropenia if this is such a problem. So like when, 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 or when would you pull the trigger on that? Or would you? That's a really good question. Um, so I think that, so first of all, like if you do have a febrile neutropenic patient, the guidelines are very clear that you're not supposed to use GCSF to treat febrile neutropenia. Um, so I guess that's one teaching point. Um, the question then is then, so when do you use GCSF and what's the data? And you're either going to use it to try to prevent or lessen the febrile neutropenia episode. So Like, for example, it'd be like a lymphoma patient who's undergoing chemotherapy. You know that that person is going to be febrile neutropenic. So you're going to give it to them as like a primary prophylactic type of thing to try to see if you can prevent that fever episode happening while they're neutropenic or if they are going to be neutropenic to shorten the duration of the neutropenia. For a solid tumor patient, I guess, an example, um, maybe you may not start it as, as primary prophylaxis, but let's say they, they get hospitalized for fever neutropenia, then maybe with their subsequent cycles, you're going to give them GCSF uh, to try to prevent the subsequent fever neutropenia episode from happening. So for a patient like this, if, if it, uh, cause I do want to see if we have any audience questions, but would you, um, if they're at 10 days and the, and the fever has stopped and the neutrophil count starting to come up and you haven't cultured any fungus or really found a bacterial source, we got a CAT scan, there was no nodules. Is that at that point, would you just stop it if they've been afebrile for like 24 to 48 hours? And how do you, yeah. do you peel them off in sequence, like the antifungals, mm-hmm. then the antibacterials? Um, I think that, um, if this lady recovers her counts, she's clinically stable, she's defervesced and there's no evidence for infection, you can stop the antibiotics, uh, right away. I know that 
some oncologists like to do the stepwise approach, like stopping the mango first and then seeing how they do and then stopping, but that's not really necessary. You can just stop everything all at the same time. Okay. Paul, are we, are we missing anything or do you think we should uh, get some audience questions in here? I, yep. I think it's, it's time to see if there's any questions in the audience. Okay. All right. If there's any questions, we can take them now. Um, I know that some people have other places to be, so we can let you go and you don't have to suffer through our outro, which is uh, something that Paul and I do at the end of each episode. Susan, I did have a question. This actually comes up in terms of the GCSF because I think oncologists have their differing opinions about it. And from what we talk about this a lot, how it doesn't, there doesn't appear to be a mortality benefit, but there are other benefits like a shorter duration of fever, shorter duration of neutropenia, shorter duration of hospitalization. Um, so I'm wondering, I just, we, we just kind of wonder why the recommendation is against it. If there are, are no, like, it seems to be mortality neutral, at least, you know, there's not, there aren't like negative effects associated with it. So I just wanted, wondered what you thought about that. And to clarify the question, this is for the patient who did not receive it before and then became uh, neutropenic and febrile. And now you're thinking, should we give it now that this, this has already occurred? Yes, exactly. Okay. Susan, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a complicated question. Whenever, whenever I'm happens. on service and I have a patient like this, I have to reach out to the oncologist and and speak with them directly. Some of them are are say say yes, and some of them say absolutely not. Um, and it really just differs depending on the the specific oncologist. So it just, it never really made as much sense to me why it was, there's such a, a negative reaction to it, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't really know. I, I don't know that I'm going to give you a good answer for that, Jen. Um, sorry. And I, I didn't find one. I mean, that's, that's why we wanted to ask about it because it just seemed like uh, it, it just seemed like it was, it was a bit of a gray area. They, you know, on one hand they'd say, don't do it. And then on the other hand, they're saying, they're saying, but you know, sometimes if the person continues to be febrile and neutropenic and you think it's going to be prolonged, you can consider it. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, on my part, we reach out to the oncologist. I, I tend to be more in favor of it. So if they're in agreement, we usually give it. So just on my part, Michelle, I think you, do you have a question? I see one here in the chat. I can I can read it as well. It says, "Does the length of treatment differ uh, inpatient versus outpatient, assuming the person's no longer febrile?" So, could is there any different calculus in when how you would stop antibiotics on an inpatient versus outpatient? I think it, the calculus is really dependent on the resolution of the fever and and when when the neutrophil count recovers. You know, every patient is different. And even, even for the same patient, each episode could be different too. Probably like as that patient gets more and more treatment experience, the time to recovery for the neutropenia may get a little bit longer. But I think, um, I don't know that I can say that there's going to be a difference in the antibiotic exposure between inpatient versus outpatient, because it really hinges on the resolution of the fever neutropenia. You know, a lot of oncologists target a neutrophil count of one as opposed mm. to above 0. Mm. 0.5. Could you talk a little bit about what the guidelines say in terms of like when to stop, what neutrophil count to stop antibiotics if they've been afebrile and otherwise stable? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, we're, uh, I think that um, that's very, very conservative. And actually, the, the guidelines say that if the neutrophil count is 0. 0.5, 
then that's when you can actually say that you can stop the antibiotics because at some point that 0.5 is going to keep going up, the trajectory is going to go up. So there's really no need to keep the patient in-house until that neutrophil recovery hits one. You can just stop it at 0.5. I think that's something we need to sort of try to work with our oncologists on, certainly. Yeah. Another question in the chat from Duani is, what if they're neutropenic still after seven days, but the fevers have stopped, but they're still neutropenic and it's like beyond seven days. Do you, I mean, at some point, do you, do you, can you stop the antibiotics or do you, do you narrow them to like a prophylactic medicine, a secondary prophylaxis? That's a really great, great question. And I, I feel like that we could have like another, like probably, you know, long discussion about it. There is this new, um, and I think Donnie, you're, you're, you're touching on this new paradigm called de-escalation. And I think it's less of an issue, again, for solid tumor patients, because again, the duration of the neutropenia is short. But I think, for example, the patient, the high-risk neutropenic patients, for example, who are going to be neutropenic for longer than a week, uh, there's this new paradigm called de-escalation in which that if they have been afebrile, even if they're going to be neutropenic and they, they have no evidence for active infection, they're clinically stable then there's this new paradigm where um, that, yes, that we can de-escalate them and put them back on quinoline prophylaxis. We've actually incorporated that into our leukemia service guidelines. And there's the data to sort of help support that. There's a really good um, Spanish study that was a randomized control study called the How Long Study. They actually stopped antibiotics completely. They compared continuation of the antibiotic versus as a standard of care versus de-escalation to zero antibiotics, not even prophylaxis. And they showed that there was no adverse outcomes in terms of mortality. And I think given the problem antibiotic resistance, that this approach has taken um, the infectious disease community, we're all very interested in it and all trying to think about how to incorporate that uh, within our own respective institutions. So thank you for that question. So I think we should take get take-home points. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, we'd love to answer more questions, but time-wise, we just uh, have to go. So let's get, Susan, if you had like two or three take-home points that you wanted people to remember from this talk, what would those be? Um, again, low-risk patients, mild, short neutropenia, high-risk patients, long, severe neutropenia. If they're high-risk, you're going to admit them for IV antibiotic therapy. If they're low-risk, but more than likely, you can either you can admit them, but you can also consider the possibility of outpatient therapy. Okay. So with that, uh, Paul, do you want to do an outro, or do you think we should save that for off? Uh, you know, once we once we conclude here. I I'm game to go now, and whoever wants to listen to it can listen to it. Otherwise, I, I think I think that we're done. Okay. All right. Let's let's do the outro. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. That bring you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Now you have to do that much of in front of 30 people. <laughs> <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list while you're there to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, but to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I wanted to give a special thanks to our social media team. Beth Garbs Garbatelli is on Twitter. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov is on the website. And Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. 
And we would, of course, like to thank you all again for your kind invitation to, to come and talk to Dr. So. We should also thank Dr. Stuart Brigham, who composed the theme music that no one here is hearing, but you'll hear uh, if you actually listen to the <laughs> podcast. Um, we should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly, who will be editing our audio. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.